This talk is offered by Ordinary Mind Zendo. Ordinary Mind was founded by Barry Majid, Dharma heir of Charlotte Joko Beck, and is dedicated to her vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of American students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. For the past uh, month or so, I've been reading War and Peace. And uh, what uh, has struck me about it this time around is how uh, central to the novel is the story of uh, religious conversion. When I read the book... uh, the first time in college uh, uh, over 50 years ago. Uh, What stays with me, uh, the memory of that from that time was uh, Tolstoy's theory of uh, history and the idea that uh, History cannot be understood as the action of great men like uh, making choices that determine the course of history, but rather that history is this infinitely complex causal net and that any little action that perturbs one corner of that net can set in motion all sorts of events that are completely unpredictable and that in trying to create a narrative for ourselves, we invent notions like causality, that this was the cause of the French Revolution or that was the cause of why Napoleon decided to invade Russia and all that sort of thing. But it was actually... uh, For Tolstoy, something closer to what um, we might now think of as uh, chaos theory and the idea that a uh, a flutter of a butterfly's wing uh, causes hurricanes uh, halfway across the world. Uh, There's no one place where you can look at causality. In any case... um, That's a good lesson uh, for us in terms of uh, interconnection and interdependence. But what struck me uh, differently this time around was how so much of the story centers around a prince who grows up with every privilege and has to leave that all behind and suffer in order to gain wisdom. Unlike uh, Shakyamuni, who grew up shielded from suffering, the privations, suffering, you know, old age, illness and death, and was shocked when they intruded into his life 
Tolstoy's uh, uh, Count Bezikov, Pierre, uh, is, uh, has to come about his lessons about suffering involuntarily. And it's only by being thrown into war and deprivation that he learns anything about what the, his previous life uh, really was like and to find anything of what he was searching for in that life. So Tolstoy has a sort of fundamentally different picture of suffering and that for him it is really the way life teaches us suffering is not um, something to be overcome suffering is something to be embraced and is the way life is our teacher I thought I would try to pick out a couple passages uh, that illustrate something about uh, Tolstoy's view of the relation of uh, suffering to insight. And I think that um, further, it's, it might be interesting uh, in a discussion later to sort of put that up against some of what we've read in uh, Vanderkoek about uh, the kind of suffering that shuts people down rather than opens them up. What makes that for that kind of difference? So let me read a couple passages here to begin with. Uh, Pierre, as a um, fabulously rich aristocrat, uh, is in a position to um, uh, sort of uh, stand apart from a lot of what's happening around him if he chooses. Uh, his wealth would enable him to essentially purchase a high rank in the army and serve if he wants to, or it would allow him to uh, be a bystander. And initially, Rather than serve, he just wants to go see what's happening. He, he wants to uh, see it for himself close hand and uh, understand uh, what's happening to Russia. And he gets caught up in uh, battles and sees people killed for the first time. And he's so horrified by all this that it really drives him out of his mind and he develops a kind of uh, delusion that he has been uh, chosen uh, to assassinate Napoleon and that this is his great personal mission in life. And this is utter nonsense because uh, he has no uh, possible way of getting close to Napoleon or wouldn't know how to assassinate him uh, if he did. He gets himself a gun, which he barely knows how to use, and he sort of sets off 
on foot looking for the front lines, thinking Napoleon is going to be out at the head of the army and he's going to be able to walk up to him, shoot him. He's really crazy. Uh, but what happens, uh, not surprisingly, is that uh, he gets captured uh, by the French and thrown into prison. And it's there that his uh, transformation uh, takes place. Four weeks had gone by since Pierre had was taken prisoner. Though the French offered to transfer him from the soldier's shed to the officers, he stayed in the shed he had entered on the first day. In devastated and burnt Moscow, Pierre experienced almost the final limits of privation that a man can endure. But owing to his strong constitution and health, which he had not been conscious of until then, and especially owing to the fact that these privations came so imperceptibly, it was impossible to tell when they began. He bore his situation not only lightly but joyfully. And it was precisely in that time he received the peace and contentment with himself, with he, which he had previously striven for in vain. In his life, he had long sought in various directions for that peace, that harmony with himself, which had struck him so much in the soldiers during the Battle of Borodino. He had sought it in philanthropy, in masonry, in the distractions of social life, in wine, in a heroic deed of self-sacrifice, in romantic love from a Natasha. He sought it by the way of thought, and all this sinking and trying had disappointed him. And without thinking, he had received that peace and harmony with himself only through the horror of death, through privation, and what he had understood in battle. And here's a uh, skip ahead a little here. That which he had been tormented by before, which he had constantly sought, the purpose of life, now did not exist for him. It was not that this sought-for purpose of life happened not to exist for him only at the present moment, but he felt it did not and could not exist. And this very absence of purpose gave him that full joyous awareness of freedom, which at the time constituted his happiness. He could have no purpose because now he had faith, not faith in some rules or words or thoughts, but faith in a living ever since God. Before he had sought for him in the purposes he set for himself. This seeking for a purpose had not only been seeking for God, 
And suddenly he had learned in his captivity, not through words, not through arguments, but through immediate sensation, what his nanny had told him long ago. That God is here, right here, everywhere. In captivity, he learned that God was much greater, more infinite and unfathomable than the Arctecticon of the Masons uh, was recognized. He experienced the feeling of a man who has found what he was seeking under his own feet, while he had been straining his eyes looking far away from himself. All his life he had looked off somewhere, over the heads of the people around him. Yet there was no need to strain his eyes, but only look right in front of him. Formerly, he had been unable to see the great, unfathomable, and infinite in anything. He only sensed it must be somewhere and then sought for it. In all that was close and comprehensible, he had only seen the limited, the petty, the humdrum, the meaningless. He had armed himself with a mental spyglass and gazed into the distance, where the petty and humdrum disappeared in a distant mist had sensed to him great and infinite only because it was clearly not visible. Thus he had looked at European life, politics, masonry, philanthropy, philosophy. But even then, in moments he regarded as his own weakness, his mind had penetrated this distance, and there too he had seen the petty, the humdrum, the meaningless. Now he had learned to see the great, the eternal, the infinite in everything. And therefore, in order to see it, to enjoy contemplating it, he had naturally abandoned the spyglass he had been looking through until then over people's heads and joyfully contemplated the ever-changing, ever-great, unfathomable, and infinite life around him. And the closer he looked, the calmer and happier he became. The terrible question, why, which had formerly destroyed all his mental constructions, did not exist for him now. Now to this question, why, a simple answer was always ready in his soul. Because there is God, that God without whose will not a single hair falls from a man's head. I think it's always interesting to try to compare these kinds of realizations with what we think constitutes realization in our Zen practice. I would think it's a terrible folly to imagine that the meaning of life and death has only been available to those who practice in a certain sect or discipline at one point in history in one country in the world. To me, that's uh, equivalent of imagining, you know, that our our one little sect of Southern Baptists are the only ones who are going to go to heaven and the 
99% of the rest of the world is all damned to hell. I don't think it can be the case that it's just, you know, a few Zen practitioners who have seen the, the ultimate truth and through their particular tradition, discipline, and lineage, and everybody else has only got a pale imitation of that truth. Tolstoy is a figure for whom his whole life was a restless searching for meaning in truth himself in some ways uh, growing up not as rich and powerful as uh, uh, Pierre in the story, but as an aristocrat, a man of privilege who was always ambivalent about that and tried first in his novels to come to terms with, with what that meant. And the novels uh, gave voice to his first kinds of um, experiences of, uh, of insight. But it was later in life that he um, had a, a full uh, religious conversion and devoted himself entirely to trying to find the, uh, a, a way to, to live a simple Christian life and to spread the gospel. And in doing so, uh, he became a, a figure perhaps even more influential than he ever did as a novelist. He's really the, um, the originator of the idea of um, nonviolent uh, civil disobedience. And his writings about that uh, were the direct inspiration for, for Gandhi and uh, later for uh, King. He um, like all people who uh, attempted to live a saintly life was probably an enormous pain in the ass in person, uh, and very difficult uh, husband and father. Uh, I don't think his family particularly appreciated his wanting to give away. His, all his wealth and the royalties from his books and lived the life of a Russian uh, peasant in order to escape uh, the sins of luxury. But he lived uh, after decades of, uh, of fame as a novelist, he really made this attempt to transform his life in uh, conformity with his own realization. And I, uh, he was also um, deeply influenced by Schopenhauer, uh, who was one of the original uh, Western philosophers to take Buddhism seriously. 
And in a certain sense, you can see in Tolstoy translating some of that idea of the negation of the self and the negation of desire into uh, a Christian context. For Tolstoy, in this, certainly in this novel, you see that the great suffering comes not from uh, deprivation, but from excess. Uh, that the people who are truly benighted and lost suffer because they have too much, not because they have too little. And that for Tolstoy, the path of insight is inseparable from a path of asceticism, of the curbing of appetite, uh, very literally uh, curbing the appetite for food, for sex, uh, for desire in all, all its forms. And it's that stripping away, that negation, uh, that is the essential element in uh, being able to see what's right in, in front of us. The same or different in what we're doing. It's a question I'll uh, leave us with and we can discuss uh, more in a little while. I think I'll stop there. <laughs>